0: We're going to look at an overview of Job's miserable comforters and the messages that they brought to him. Ultimately, we're going to see that they would have been a whole lot better off, and so would Job, if they had just sat there quietly and just been with him. You know, that's a lesson we ought to learn. Sometimes it's not our words that comfort others, it's our presence. Join us today as we begin looking at these miserable comforters who really brought no comfort at all to Job. But first, we have a song selection that I hope you enjoy. After the song, please stay tuned for another message of God's sovereign grace from the Zion Primitive Baptist Church pulpit.
1: My hope is built on nothing less
0: been studying the book of Job, and we want to go back there this morning. It seems like most all we've done to this point has been sort of a precursor and an overview, and this morning may seem like that as well, but the truth of the matter is we've made it all the way to the fourth chapter now, and we're beginning to move into a, another portion of the book of Job, a sort of a, uh, a change, if you will, in what we read in the first and second chapters and even the third chapter. You may recall that the first and second chapters told us about uh, the encounter between God and Satan where they were both attending a worship service where Job apparently was and where God pointed out to Satan about the good things that Job was doing and and the way that Job was living. And it reminds us that God is proud of his children. You know, we've said this in the book of Job. There's several themes there, and I don't pretend to have all the answers about all the different nuances of the book of Job, but there's at least three themes that I see in the book of Job. There's patience, pride, and pity. And, of course, the patience of Job is mentioned in James, the 5th chapter, in the 11th verse. And I always say that, uh, that the best commentator, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. If you want to know what the book of Job is really all about, There's James, the fifth chapter in the 11th verse. It says, you have heard of the patience of Job and you have seen the end of the Lord. Now, many people think the end of the Lord in the book of Job was kind of difficult and and sort of uh, uh, arbitrary, that God somehow has some manipulation going on. But let me just say to you, uh, notice what James says about it. You've seen the end of the Lord. So what's the end of the Lord when Satan has afflicted the children of God? In in James 5.11, he says, You have seen the end of the Lord, that he is very pitiful and of tender mercies. See, ultimately, if we come away from the book of Job with any idea about God, other than that he is full of pity and that he is full of tender mercies toward his children, we have missed the point of the book of Job. Now there's there's as I said, pity is one of the themes. Also, pride is one of the themes. And there's a sort of a twofold aspect to that. There's the pride of God. God is proud of Job. God delights, as we've already seen, in the faithfulness of his children. He said, if you consider Job, there's nobody like him in, this, in the world. There's nobody like him. Nobody's living as faithfully as Job. That didn't mean Job was working his way to heaven. Job couldn't work him his way to heaven any more than, than the lowest of the thieves, the, the thief on the cross, couldn't work his way to heaven heaven, and Job couldn't do that anymore himself. But as a born-again child of God who was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world and whom Christ died for, or in Job's case, whom Christ was coming to die for one day, Job was able to please God. Beloved, we are able to please God. We are able to serve Him. We can't work our way to heaven, and please don't try, (laughs) Please don't, work on, don't, please don't look at it that way because if you try to work your way to heaven, you're never going to be satisfied. You're never going to find the rest that is promised to the children of God in the kingdom of God if you try to work your way there. <laughs> if you try to, some people think, well, God got me here, but I got to keep myself here. <laughs> that's, an even worse, that's an even worse task. I'll tell you, think about this. I don't want to get off too far this morning, Brother Mackey, but think about this. I want you to think about the best day of your life when you feel like you were the most faithful to God. And ask yourself this question. Did your good works and good thoughts and good intentions outweigh your bad? I'm sorry to tell you, I can't think of a day in my life where, where it even came close. I did some good things. I've had some good days. I've made some good efforts toward serving the Lord. I have some quote unquote righteousnesses in the sense of good works. I have some in my life and I know you do too. But not one day has any, have those righteousnesses ever risen above the level of filthy rags. You know, part of the problem there is because even when I did good works, sin was present in my mind. Maybe I, maybe I, Gave to the church. But I was thinking about how good a guy I am for doing that. <laughs> you know, maybe I helped somebody out of a ditch and pat myself on the back all the way, Brother Mackey. Job was not working his way to heaven, but Job was serving the Lord and he was pleasing God in doing so. And by the way, only a born-again child of God can do that. Because we're told that the wicked, those who are reprobate, even the plowing of the wicked is sin. But those who are children of God can do it. So there was this aspect in Job of the pride of God. God was proud of Job. But we're going to see, and we're going to see it pretty soon here as we get into the next section of Job, that there was another negative side to pride. And it weighs pretty large as we get through this. And that's the pride of Job and the self-righteousness of Job and his friends. Apparently, there was a problem among the uh, religious worship of that day. And remember, they didn't have the Bible back then. They didn't have the scriptures. They didn't even have the book of Genesis, the books of Genesis through Deuteronomy back then, according to to what we understand about when Job was written. They were kind of winging it, if you will. And I'm sure God gave special revelation to men, and he gave special revelation probably to Job in in many ways. But but just understand, they were doing, they were trying to, in many ways, uh, to, to serve God, but they were serving Him in a self-righteous way. So this morning, as we think about those themes that, that permeate the book of Job, we want to go to the fourth chapter and, and, and begin there. And, and maybe, uh, maybe we won't read as much today because I want to give us an overview about Job's miserable comforters, Job's miserable comforters. Over in the 16th chapter... Of the book of Job, Job makes this statement concerning these three men that came to see him. In verse one of chapter sixteen, Job answered and said, "I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are ye all. <laughs> miserable comforters are ye all." The word miserable is it also can be translated according to my center column here as troublesome. They came to him to comfort him, and they didn't do anything but trouble him. You ever had that experience? I've had the experience in my life of someone coming to comfort me, and all they did was stir me up. And, and another word for this could be vexation. Uh, uh, it, the, the word literally means wearisome, heavy, toil-filled labor. That's what it means. You know, when you're, when you're in need of comforting, you know, we've had a lot of death lately. We've had a lot of folks die in our community and connected to our church over the past six months to a year. And there's been a lot of times we've needed to comfort one another. And 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 what you need when you're needing to be comforted is not to be stirred up into some kind of action. You know, I need to be I, I need to sit still. I need someone's arms around me. I need someone's shoulder that I can cry on. I need, I need peace and stillness. But what they were doing, according to Job, is stirring him up and vexing him. They were troublesome comforters. You know, it's the same Hebrew word here that's used in Isaiah 53 and verse 11, where it said of God, He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. It's that same thing. The the idea here is that what these men were doing to Job was almost as bad as the struggles and the trouble that Jesus was facing on the cross. (laughs) It's that same word, at least, that's used. It's stirred up and it's causing him trouble. So let's... Let's talk about Job's miserable comforters. Back in the second chapter in the 13th, the, the, the 11th verse, we're told that Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, and they came everyone from his own place. Now here's their names Eliphaz the Timonite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. For they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. They came for a good reason, they came with good intentions. And actually, the best part of what they did, they did at the beginning. Notice as we read, When they lifted up their eyes afar off and knew him not, they lifted up their voice and wept, and they every everyone his mantle and sprinkled dust upon their heads toward heaven. And they sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him, for they saw that his grief was very great. The best thing these miserable comforters did, they did at the beginning, They didn't say a word. (laughs) They didn't say a word. I'm going to come back to that. But sometimes that's the best thing we can do for somebody who's hurting, for somebody who's mourning. So Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, his friends. And there's one other that's going to come later, and we'll talk about him when we get there. So let's talk about what Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar are doing. And, And each one of them kind of have a little, they're basically saying the same thing, but they have a little different approach. Eliphaz speaks to Job in in chapters 4 and 5, chapter 15, and chapter 27. And then Bildad speaks to Job in chapter 8, and then on over in chapter 18, and then in chapter 25. And then Zophar speaks to, to, to Job in the 11th chapter, and then on over in the 20th chapter. He only speaks to him twice. But in each case, they're saying similar things, but they have a little different approach. So let's talk about Eliphaz. Eliphaz the Temanite seems to be relying on his experiences you know people like that I mean and sometimes it's okay to rely on our experiences but if you ever sat down with somebody and they say well I know what I'm talking about because I've had this experience I've been there I know well the truth of the matter is every situation is a little different and, I, and I'm look I'm I'm guilty of this too. I'm not saying you should never say, hey brother or hey sister, I know what you're going through. It's appropriate to empathize. It's appropriate to, be, uh, to try to identify. But understand that the truth of the matter is the grief that you experience is different than the grief that I've experienced. The experience you've had is different than the experience I've had. But, but, but Eliphaz comes in and he's relying on his experiences. And especially in Job chapter 4, and five. In verse eight, let's let's begin reading in chapter four. Eliphaz in verse one. Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, If we essay to commune with thee, wilt thou be grieved? But who can withhold himself from speaking? Now remember what's just happened. In the third chapter, Job has basically we would say he has spilled his guts to them. He has opened his mouth and he has told them exactly how he's feeling. And basically the way Job is feeling is, I wish I had never been born. And if I had been born, I wish I'd died as a child. And by the way, Lord, why won't you kill me now? I'm ready to die. I'm tired. I don't want to live any longer. I wish I'd never been here. He's got the the Jimmy Stewart approach and it's a wonderful life, right? I wish I'd never been born, you know. Now, I'm going to tell you, we... You, say, you may laugh about that, but I'm telling you, we all get there sometimes, don't we? Maybe you haven't. I have. I've been to the point where it would just be better for my family and for everybody else if I'd never been born. Of course, that's not really logical thinking because if I'd never been born, they'd never been born. But, you know, we don't, we're not thinking logically when we get to that point in life. Elijah was not thinking rationally when he got down under the juniper tree. And he said, Lord... I'm no good anymore. I'm the last one left, and, and you just might as well kill me. Job, I mean, Elijah was at that point that Job was at saying, Lord, I'm just, I really am ready to die. And he had just spilled all these emotions to his friends here. And now Eliphaz says, I've got to say something. I can't not talk based on what you're saying. And notice in verse 3, he says, Behold, thou hast instructed many, and thou hast strengthened the weak hands. Thy words have upholded him that was falling, and thou hast strengthened the feeble knees. It sounded pretty good so far. He's bragging on him, right? No, he's really not. Notice what he's saying. But now it's come upon thee, and thou faintest. It touches thee, and thou art troubled. Is this not thy fear, thy confidence, thy hope, and the uprightness of thy ways? In other words, wait a minute, Job. You've been preaching all this good stuff in the past and doing all these good works and now it's hit you and you're you're reacting this way? Now, there's some, as I've said before, there's a lot of truth in what these miserable comforters say. But most of the time, they misapply that truth. And as we read through the book of Job, as you go and study it, you'll find a lot of good things they say. In fact, we're going to find out that Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar are really right in what they're saying. But the problem is they're speaking the truth, but they're not speaking it in love. They get the truth of God's sovereignty. They get the truth of God's majesty, but they miss the truth of God's eternal love and His compassion and His pity. So here's what he's saying. He said, relying on his experiences... He said, I'm going to tell you some things that I've seen. And notice in verse eight, he says, I, even as I have seen <laughs> down in chapter five and verse three, I have seen this and that. And he's, he's relying on the things that he has, he has been talking about. And, and he, notice in chapter five and verse 27, this is how he concludes it. He said, lo this, we have searched it. So it is. <laughs> In other words, it's almost as if he's saying, Hey, you can count on what I say. I've said it. Trust me, I'm right. Trust me, I'm right. You know, there's a lot of truth that you can tell to someone who's mourning, to someone who's suffering, that may be true, but is not appropriate to be telling them at the time. Brother Buddy preached a series, I believe it was him, on. uh, on on our speech and saying things. And you know, it's not only important that we say the right things, it's important that we pick the right time to say them. Over in a Proverbs, he says in one place that uh, a, a word spoken in due season is like apples of gold in pitchers of silver. But it's spoken in due season, you see. Everything he's telling him is right. He said, I've seen these things and here's what he's saying I've seen. First, going back to chapter 4 and verse 7. Remember, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the righteous cut off? Even as I have seen, they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same, by the blast of God they perish, and by the breath of his nostrils are they consumed. What he has seen in his life leads him to believe that in every situation the ones who prosper are God's children who are doing right and the ones who suffer are maybe God's children but they're doing wrong. They're saying that the suffering is evidence of God's cursing and God's displeasure upon them. Well, that may be a general principle. That may be a general observation. In fact, it's a it's a general principle in the Word of God that you reap what you sow. But we're dealing with a man right here who's not reaping what he's sown. We're dealing with a man named Job who is suffering from the attacks and the assaults of Satan and going back here and telling him, hey, my experience tells me you got some unconfessed sin in your life. You've got some problem with, in your life. That's not going to cut it. That's why God ultimately gets angry at these miserable comforters and at Job, but that's for a little different reason. So we don't want to go any more deeper into chapter 4 right now, but let's let's turn to to one of his other miserable comforters, Bildad the Shuhite. Bildad the Shuhite begins speaking over in the 8th chapter, and he says this in verse 1, Then answered Bildad the Shuhite and said, How long wilt thou speak these things? And how long shall the words of thy mouth be like a strong wind? Now, now, let me stop here and say what's happened is in chapters four and five, Eliphaz has has brought his his experiences to bear to try to teach Job some lessons and get him to understand that he's suffering because of something he's done, and then in the seventh in the. Uh, 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 in the sixth chapter, uh, Job has responded here, and he has, uh, uh, he, has, so he has defended himself. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. Job has responded in the sixth chapter and defended himself, and in the, and in the seventh chapter as well. And then Bildad says, you sound like a strong wind blowing. <laughs> he, he says, you're just, you're just uh, as, as my mother used to say, you're just talking to hear your head roar. <laughs> Uh, I don't know if y'all ever heard that. That's what Mama used to tell me. She said, quit talking just to hear your head roar, okay? God, God, uh, he, he says, how long shall the words of thy mouth be like a strong wind? He's offended by what Job has said. And then Bildad, instead of relying on his own experiences, he relies on what he's seen in history, historically. He's relied on what in his... his um, uh, understanding of what's gone before and it's basically the same thing that eliphaz says but notice what he says in verse 3 joe 8 and verse 3 doth god pervert judgment or doth the almighty pervert justice now now let me just answer the question that's a rhetorical question and the answer is god never perverts justice god never perverts justice that's a true statement You remember over in the 18th chapter of Genesis when when God had that encounter with Abraham and Abraham found out that God was going to Sodom to destroy it and began to negotiate for Lot's life. He asked the rhetorical question of God. He says, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Well, the answer to that question is absolutely. The judge of all the earth is always going to do right. And here Bildad asks a similar question: doth God pervert judgment or doth the Almighty pervert justice? In other words, how can you say God is is going to do something that's not just? But notice something here. Because if you miss the point about what's going on, then you miss the point. These three miserable comforters, and even Job begins to buy into this. They believe God is doing this to Job. They believe God's the one who's afflicted him. And you remember, I love that. I, I just love how God always is God. He never violates his nature. And you remember back over in the first chapter when, when he first pointed out Job and Satan said, yeah, you got a hedge about him and all this. And, and I've been trying to get to him, but I can't. And then in verse 11, he says, you, he, Satan talking to God, put forth thine hand now. And touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. Same thing he did to to Jesus over there after his baptism. He began to tempt Jesus. He's the great tempter. He's the slanderer. He's slandering Job here. He's slandering God. He's trying to get God to do something that goes against the very nature of God. He said, God, you touch him. And you know how many people believe God touched Job? You know how many people don't read the next verse and don't understand it and don't realize that it wasn't God doing this to Job? God played his part. God stayed true to his nature as the keeper of the hedge. And yes, he lowered the hedge, but God never one time afflicted his sweet servant Job. Because notice what happened next. The Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. God is not the afflictor of the brethren. Yes, God chastens his children. But he chastens them in love. He does not arbitrarily afflict them. He does not arbitrarily send suffering upon them. If he ever allows or permits suffering, or as I like to say it, biblically speaking, as he, if he ever suffers sufferings and tribulations to come upon them, he's with them through it. Satan tried to get him to touch Job. <laughs> God wouldn't do it. He said, he's in your hands. And praise God, I know I pointed this out earlier, but in case I didn't and in case you've forgotten, Notice that he set a limit. God is still protecting Job. And if you miss that point, you miss the point of Job. God is not doing this to Job. You see, Bildad says, God's doing this for a reason, Job. God's doing it to you. They're assuming something that's not happening. Due to the constraints of time, we will stop the message here. Please join us tomorrow for the conclusion of this message. If you would like to subscribe to our website, please go to www.zionpbc.com and sign up for email updates. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact the church at zionpbc1847 at gmail.com. That's z i o n p b c.